look forward to the day when the church, presently afflicted in countless ways, will be victorious. And the church, beleaguered in many ways, will be the church at rest. Till then, we press on, don't we? Well, let me ask you to turn your Bibles once again to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I, I enjoy hiking in the woods. Some of you I know do as well. And generally, when you go hiking, you identify the trail you're going to go on, uh, and you follow that trail. There's a, a beginning. We call it the trailhead. There's an end. It might be a loop. You might double back, or you might come out in another place. But that's your trail. Now, sometimes as you walk along this trail, there are what is called spur trails. It's a side trail that goes off to some point of interest. It might be a beautiful waterfall. It might be a scenic overlook. It's not really a detour where you're going somewhere else. You you wander off onto that trail or you go to that trail, you you look at whatever the the view is, and then you come back to your trail. It's a spur. Well, you're not really changing course. You're simply taking a side trip. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, and our focus throughout this study is the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is superior, uh, his word is superior to the word given by angels, and Jesus is superior to the angels. He is superior to Moses, and in recent weeks we've been looking at the fact that Jesus' priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood provided for in the Old Covenant. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Those earthly priests stood daily giving sacrifices that could never take away sins. Jesus, once for all, gave himself and satisfied the righteous requirements of God. He died, he rose, he ascended into heaven and no longer stands, but he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and daily intercedes for us. He is a great high priest. The priesthood of the new covenant is superior to the priesthood of the old covenant The new covenant established in the blood of our Savior is superior to the old covenant that established the law and the Levitical priests. Last week, we looked at this text in that context, particularly the promise, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And I made the statement then, that's why I'm a Baptist. Well, I want to go further into that. I want to take a a spur trail, if you would, if you will, And um, the title of my message this morning is, The New Covenant, Why We Are Baptists. Now, we don't do this very often, but I thought it'd be very helpful for us to spend some time explaining why it is we believe and why we practice believers' baptism. Why we believe in what I call a saved membership. We only baptize people, whether they're children or adults, who have actually repented of their sins, and placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So I want us to look at the biblical evidence. I want us to see what does God's Word tell us about baptism and who the legitimate candidates are for baptism. And the question arises, is baptism only for believers in Jesus Christ, or is it for professing believers and their as yet unbelieving children? In other words, we're asking the question to believe in paedo-baptism, the baptism of children and infants, or what some have called credo-baptism, baptism of those who are professing faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to say from the outset, I have tremendous respect for my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Some of my favorite authors and preachers are Presbyterians. Uh, you won't find a finer uh, preacher of God's Word and writer in our day than Sinclair Ferguson. 
And I said recently in, in a prayer meeting, if Dr. Ferguson were present, I would probably change my, my, my message this morning. Not because I know he's way smarter than I am, but I simply have so much respect for him, I would not uh, debate him on this issue. Back in 1981, I was a senior at Furman and attending this church, and we were in the process of a building project. We were at our previous location, and we were just about to complete our new worship center or sanctuary, uh, and it had a baptism, a Baptist, baptismal pool in it. Uh, up to that point, we were having to use somebody else's, another church's baptismal pool, and that, that's where I was baptized and, uh, on another location. And so in the announcements, our pastor was excited about the fact that very soon this would be completed and we could do our own baptisms and our own worship services on site. And the guest speaker that morning was a pastor named John Oliver from First Presbyterian Church. And I I see a couple of you smiling already because you remember this. Uh, And so when Dr. Oliver got up to preach, he turned to the pastor and said, Brother, I can solve your baptism problem this morning. We just take a little font and put it right over here on the side. Uh, And uh, everybody in the room cracked up laughing because it was all said in good humor. And uh, he would would not have dared to presume to preach on baptism in a Baptist church. And we wouldn't do the same as well. As we sang in the hymn, the church, it says, by schisms run asunder and heresies oppressed. This is not a matter of schism or heresy. This is not a matter of false teaching. It's a matter where sincere and faithful brothers who otherwise are in agreement on virtually everything in, uh, in what Scripture teaches, we disagree on how you interpret the teaching on baptism. That doesn't hinder us from enjoying wonderful fellowship and profiting from the ministries of our Presbyterian brothers, but it does have a profound impact on how we operate as a local church and how they do as well. So five points that I would draw out this morning uh, for you. First of all, what is baptism? We're going to define it. What is baptism? Secondly, how does the new covenant inform who should be baptized? How does the new covenant uh, inform those that are legitimate candidates for baptism. Thirdly, I want to look at the hermeneutics of baptism. Hermeneutics is a big fancy word for the science of biblical interpretation. So the hermeneutics are the interpretation of texts dealing with baptism. Fourthly, we're going to look at some additional biblical evidence. And finally, why believers' baptism matters. So first of all this morning, what is baptism? And the best definition that I have found is located actually in the Westminster Confession of Faith which is a Presbyterian document. Now, the confession that we embrace, the Second London Confession, is similar, but actually like Westminster's better. It's there on the wall. And the statement is, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of six things, five things of the covenant of grace, of his, that is, the person being baptized, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Uh, Penelope, if you just leave that up there for a few moments, I'd appreciate it. So my question this morning is baptism, what the Westminster Confession tells us it is, and I believe the answer is yes. Now, don't get hung up on that word sacrament, 
All right, there are people, their Baptist, the Baptist confession says it's an ordinance. Sacrament simply means, it's just a means of grace. We call baptism a means of grace. We call communion a means of grace. We call singing hymns a means of grace. They don't confer grace upon anyone, but they are uh, ways that we uh, draw near to the Lord. They are ways that not save us or make us more saved, but ways in which our faith is developed and grown. So the word sacrament's not a bad word. Uh, We can say that baptism is taught in the New Testament, is ordained by the Lord Jesus himself. So however we understand baptism, it should be informed by the New Testament. Again, the Westminster Confession says it is a sacrament of the New Testament. Very important. And so our understanding should be based on the New Testament following the pattern and the teaching, first of all, of our Lord himself. In Mark chapter 1, we read that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. Now, this was obviously before Jesus came onto the scene. Uh, John was the precursor, prepare the way of the Lord. But three things I want you to see in Mark chapter 1. First of all, it says John was baptizing the disciples who repented. They were confessing their sins. That's not something an infant is capable of doing. The second thing I want you to see is he was baptizing in the Jordan River. Now, you don't need a river to sprinkle a little bit of water on somebody's head. You can have a font here here on the side. Uh, A river was where they immersed people. And, we, and the word baptism literally means immerse. But that's not what this message is really about. The mode is not the important thing for our purpose this morning. But the third thing I want you to see, and this is important, we'll see later, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem are going out to him. That doesn't mean every single individual, but it means everybody knew what was going on. This was widely known. And people heard and understood what John the Baptist was doing, and they recognized he was carrying out a baptism of repentance for those who are confessing their sins. Very important for something I'll be addressing a little bit later in the message. In John chapter 4, verse 1, we read that Jesus and his disciples baptized more disciples than John. And it goes on to say that actually Jesus wasn't baptizing, his disciples were. But it's significant that they were baptizing disciples, and there's no mention whatsoever of baptizing disciples and their children. Now, our Presbyterian brothers argue that it would be natural for their children to be included because in the old covenant, the sign and seal, which is circumcision, would carry over to the sign and seal of the new covenant, which is baptism. In fact, they point to Matthew chapter 19, where where parents are bringing children to Jesus to lay his hands on them and pray for them and bless them. And the disciples rebuked those parents. And Jesus rebuked the disciples and said, let the children come to me and don't hinder them. For such, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now just stop and think a minute. This is kind of an argument from silence because they're not being baptized there. The Presbyterians claim that. But in our case, it's a bit of an argument from silence too, but I still think it's compelling, and that's this. If the disciples had regularly been baptizing parents and their children, why would they be hindering those children from coming to Jesus? It would have been natural. It would have been expected. But that's not what was going on. 
They saw the faith as something for grown-ups only, and so don't bother the master with these kids. It's not the truth, not the case at all. But the candidates for baptism were those, I believe, who were actually already professing faith in Christ. In the confession, the second thing I want you to see is the, it's for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. I call baptism the initiatory right or the right of initiation into church membership. So when somebody is baptized, it symbolizes their, uh, their uh, union with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and their, uh, their admission, their entry into the visible New Testament church. So my question is, are children to be regarded unconverted children to be regarded as church members. Now, again, our Presbyterian brothers, they look at the confessional statement. It's for the uh, 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 solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, and they say these covenant children are to be regarded as non-communicant members. In other words, they are to be viewed as members of the church until they give compelling evidence otherwise, but they can't take communion and don't have other privileges of membership until they profess faith in Jesus Christ. You don't find anything anywhere in any part of the Bible, Old or New Testament, to substantiate that teaching. But that's their explanation for how baptism can be the visible sign of a solemn admission into the church membership of the visible church and yet be given to children. So, my question is, if a non-communicant member grows up, never professes faith, rejects the faith altogether, lives a profligate life, but he was a member of the church, is he to be subject of excommunication? That's kind of a problem. I don't believe that's what they do. The next thing we see in the confession, it tells us that baptism is a sign and seal of five important Christian realities. First of all, of the covenant of grace. It's a sign and seal that this person is a member of the covenant community. We're going to examine that question a bit further in a few moments. But secondly, it is a sign and seal of his engrafting into Christ. But a baby, an unbelieving child, has not been engrafted to Christ yet. His parents hope one day he will be, as also Baptist parents hope our children will be engrafted into Christ. But at birth, every single baby is sinful. Every single one of us, our hearts go astray the moment we exit the womb. We are alienated from the life of God because of our sin. Uh, in John 3.16, it says, whoever receives him will not perish but have eternal life. But then it goes on in the subsequent verses, it says, but whoever does not receive him, or excuse me, the subsequent verse says, whoever receives him will not be condemned, but whoever does not receive him stands condemned already. So if a child is a covenant child, non-communicate member, is he condemned already or is he not? That's a challenging question. And there have been all kinds of debates about that issue. But that child, that covenant, non-communicate member child, is like our children. They need Christ. They need to be reconciled to God and engrafted into Jesus Christ. And which leads us to the third indication or sign and seal of regeneration. Now, regeneration is just a big fancy theological word for the new birth or being born again. 
Jesus said, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say, go get yourself born again. It's something that God does to us. The new birth is just like, is analogous to the original birth. A baby doesn't choose when to be born. He's passive in the process. We don't choose to be reborn. We're passive. God grants regeneration. But no baby is regenerate. So the question, again, is baptism, the sign and seal of what we hope will take place or of a reality that's already taken place? Is it a seal that guarantees that every baptized infant will indeed be engrafted into Christ? Well, it can't be because this doesn't happen. So what does it mean if it applies to babies? I'm not sure. And the last thing is of remission, or the fourth item rather, is of remission of sins. Again, the sins of, a, of an infant are not forgiven yet. Now, he may be elect, and we hope and pray that all of our children are elect, and they will come to faith in Christ, and their sins will be forgiven. But at the, at the present time, they need a Savior. And every faithful Presbyterian pastor would agree with that statement. I've witnessed a number of infant baptisms, and the pastor makes very clear, this child is going to need to grow up and repent of his sins and put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ at some point. And my immediate thought is, then why are you baptizing him? But I never say that. Uh, But if baptism isn't a sign of seal of something that's already happened and it's not guaranteeing something that will happen, then what is it? And then finally, in the confession, it says, it is a sign and seal of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. And of course, we know that's based on Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 4. It says, we were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, is it a sign and seal that that child is walking in newness of life in their yet unregenerate and infant state? Or is it an expression of hope that they will? It's certainly not a guarantee. Now, there are those who say there are tremendous covenant blessings for a child growing up in a Christian home. You know what? I agree with that statement. I agree with that statement. It's a wonderful blessing for a child to grow up with godly parents who teach him the gospel, who demonstrate for him and show him what it means to love Christ and to live for Christ and show him our utter need for Jesus Christ every single day. And being called a covenant child doesn't change that reality. Or not being a covenant child doesn't change that reality. It's a tremendous benefit to grow up in a godly home and being exposed to the gospel on a daily basis. But until that child's converted, he's not converted. Until he's converted, I don't see how he can fit the description of baptism or meet the description of baptism contained in the Westminster Presbyterian Confession of Faith. So the Westminster Confession, I believe, their first chapter anyway, or first paragraph, strongly argues for believers' baptism. So secondly, our, our second major point is how does the new covenant inform those who should be, or inform us as to who should be baptized. Thank you, Penelope. And so, look, looking now in Hebrews chapter 8, I want you to see, first of all, that the new covenant is not like the old covenant. Scripture clearly tells us that God finds fault with them, those who are part of the old covenant. And he says, I'm going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
There are significant fundamental differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. And I'm convinced that the old covenant is physical in nature, and the new covenant is spiritual. And what I mean is that admission into the old covenant is based on your physical parentage. A baby born to a Jewish family was to be circumcised, receiving receiving the sign that he is part of the covenant community, a male baby, obviously. It didn't make any difference whether those parents were actually faithful or not. There were Jewish members of the covenant community who were not faithful to God, but they still circumcised their child. And those children were still considered part of the covenant. And yet neither they nor their parents were actually regenerate. And we find that God was not pleased with them. And yet they were all included in the covenant community. The Old Testament is a painful accounting of the rebellion of those members of that Old Testament covenant community. So the membership of the Old Covenant was physical, but not necessarily, I'll say, not necessarily spiritual. Now, there's certainly many in the Old Covenant who love the Lord and trusted in Him, and we believe they were redeemed by the blood of Christ in anticipation. Because we don't believe there are two ways of salvation, we believe there are one. But I want you to see, secondly, the promises of the New Covenant are different from those of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant promises were conditional. The blessings of salvation, uh, the blessing of salvation was conditioned upon the faithfulness of the individual to that covenant. So as long as an Israelite continued to trust in the Lord, as long as he continued to uh, uh, obey the law, as long as he continued to uh, make use of the means that God had provided in the Old Covenant, uh, the sacrificial system, his faith was actually not gaining him salvation because of those sacrifices. It was anticipatory looking toward Christ. But he was, had, a, had a, a heart that was circumcised, the Old Testament speaks about, not just his flesh, but his heart. Then he was saved. He was saved in anticipation of the blood that Jesus shed for him. And there were many in the Old Covenant who did trust the Lord, who did live faithful and godly lives. But there were also many who rejected God because the, and that covenant was conditional. He said, with them I found fault and I no longer regarded them. I had no regard for them. But the promises, as we'll see in a moment, of the new covenant, they're absolute and they're unconditional. All the conditions of that covenant were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. The righteousness that God requires was met, was fulfilled, was secured by our Lord and was imputed, was given to us freely by his grace. So let's look for a moment at these promises of the old covenant. In verse 10, it says, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. First of all, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. The first promise of the new covenant is the promise of a new heart. Pastor Mark mentioned in his prayer that uh, what Ezekiel uh, wrote, that God says, I will take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. In the Old Covenant, the law of God was written on tablets of stone, and men were saying, we're told, you need to obey these laws. But in the New Covenant, we read that those laws are written on our hearts. It's not that the laws change. It's not that some of the Ten Commandments no longer apply. It's that our hearts now embrace those, and our hearts are now inclined to delight in the law of God. It's not that he is forcing us to do something we don't want to do. He's giving us a heart that desires to live for him 
to please him, to bring honor and glory to him. Doesn't mean that we don't continue to struggle with remaining sin. We all do. But when we sin, because the law of God is written on our hearts, our consciences by the Holy Spirit convict us, and the Spirit leads us to repent once again. So the old covenant promises required that people live up to the law or keep the law of Moses. But the new covenant promises are founded on Jesus having fully kept the law and God graciously writing that law on our minds and on our hearts. Well, the second promise of the new covenant is that we have this everlasting covenant relationship with God. Again, at the end of verse 10, it says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the old covenant, there is this possibility of an intimate relationship. God said, I took them by the hand and led them out of slavery in Egypt. The possibility was there. But most of them abandoned that covenant. And so as we read in verse 9, God showed no concern for them. But in the new covenant, this intimate relationship, he is my God and I'm his child, this intimate relationship is guaranteed for every single member of the new covenant. God secures in us a new heart that will never ever stray away from him. He is our God We are his people. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. There's no one who can ever snatch us out of his hand. He secures for us this intimate, everlasting covenant relationship with himself. The third blessing, the third promise of the new covenant is that all covenant people will know their God. Again, in verse 11, they shall not teach each one of his, uh, his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, author of Hebrews, and before that, the, 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 the word of God to Jeremiah is not instruction for the people of God is no longer necessary. All right? Uh, Hebrews instructs the people of God. So it would be a total contradiction to interpret it that way. But what it is saying is no longer will one member of the covenant community need to tell another member of the covenant community, your problem is you need to know the Lord because they'll all know me. The, The very youngest who truly trusts in Christ to the very oldest who's trusting in Christ, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So we don't need to evangelize members of the covenant. We do need to evangelize those who are not yet converted. Years ago, I was talking with some Presbyterian brothers, and uh, one of them said to me, you Baptists don't know what to do with your children. I said, sure we do. We evangelize them. (laughs) It's interesting you read, not all, but some Presbyterian Sunday school curriculum, it kind of assumes the kids are already regenerate. It moralizes them. That's not helpful. But all will know their God. The old covenant, a promise was made to Abraham and his offspring or and his seed. So in the old covenant, it, 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 it embraced Abraham and his seed, and so they were all circumcised. But, you know, Abraham had two sons. One was named Isaac, but the other was named Ishmael. And Ishmael was not, he was circumcised, but he was not part of the covenant community. He did not know God. He was not regarded in that spiritual sense as a son of Abraham. So that old covenant, even that that, that circumcision didn't ensure that he would be part 
of the redeemed. In Isaac, he had two sons. One was named Jacob. One was named Esau. What does God say? He says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Esau was part of the covenant community, but he was not redeemed. He did not have a new heart. But in the new covenant, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And the fourth blessing of the new covenant is the complete forgiveness of sins. Verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That doesn't mean that God is going to contract a case of divine amnesia where he cannot remember our sins. Rather, he will deal with us in mercy, meaning he will not give us what we actually deserve. And when it says he will remember our sins no more, it means deliberately and intentionally he will choose not to bring them up, but rather choose to remember the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So his dealings with us will not be based on our sins, our disobedience, our imperfect obedience, which is still polluted with our own sin, but rather as he remembers us, he will remember us in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, the finished work of our Lord and Savior, our priest, King and he'll deal with us in light of Jesus' perfect righteousness. Now, you can't claim any of these four promises to be true of an unconverted child. Whether he's received the sacrament of infant baptism or not, none of those things are real in his life. His participation in the covenant is still conditional, whether or not he actually comes to faith in Christ or not. But see, all the elect from every tribe Nation, people, and tongue, all will know him. All will be called to him. Whatever family and whatever tradition they come from, every single elect person will come to faith in Christ. But there are some in Baptist families, some in Presbyterian families, some in any kind of family that that do not in the wisdom and the mysterious providence of God. And so this practice of infant baptism doesn't secure anything for anyone as far as I can tell and it certainly I don't believe has a biblical foundation but when a person comes to faith in Christ then he's baptized and all of these promises are real in his life that's when that covenant sign should be applied well thirdly I want us to consider for a few moments what I call the hermeneutics of baptism in other words how do we interpret the scriptures as they speak of or have implications for baptism. And I would make this statement, if you want to find infant baptism in your Bible, you're going to have to engage in some creative hermeneutics. First thing you have to do is you have to accept, you have to reverse the accepted order of how we interpret progressive revelation. In every aspect of theological study, in biblical theology, we always say you interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. The New Testament, uh, there's further progress of revelation, and so the New Testament makes more clear what is taught us in the Old Testament. In fact, there's a, a, a statement often made, the new in the old is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. In other words, New Testament truths are concealed, they're hinted at, they're types and shadows in the Old Testament, but they aren't revealed fully until we come to the New. And every faithful Reformed theologian holds to that principle until it comes to infant baptism. And there they stand it on its head. Rather than allowing the New Testament 
to inform their understanding of baptism, they look to the Old Testament to interpret key New Testament passages. In Acts chapter 2, go ahead and turn there if you would. Uh, Peter has preached this great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, uh, it tells us the the people were cut to the heart when when he told them that they had put God's Messiah to death. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? In verse 38 and 39, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, I emphasize that word, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, if you rightly understand Peter's response, he is distinguishing between a command and a promise. What must we do? Here's the command. This is what you need to do. You need to repent and be baptized. And here's a promise. Your sins are forgiven and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the breadth of the promises is to you, to your children. It's to those who are near and those who are far off. And those three groups are then summarized by the statement, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Which means baptism should not be administered to those who are not yet called to the Lord. Now, our Pedro-Baptist brothers, Pedro-Baptist, by the way, means baptizing children or infants, they would say a Jewish audience naturally would think of including their children. It would be unthinkable of them not to include their children in the sign of the new covenant. And some even said it would be unthinkable that they would have to excommunicate their children on the spot as they receive believers' baptism. Well, that's pretty strong language, but is it a, is a reversed hermeneutic because they're interpreting the Old Testament, excuse me, they're interpreting the New Testament in light of the Old. They're importing New Testament instructions about the Old, Old Testament instructions about the Old Covenant into instructions about the New Covenant. The Old was based on physical generation. The New is based on spiritual regeneration, this new birth. And so the clear meaning is that repent and be baptized, go together. And the promise, the sign and the seal of forgiveness and of the gift of the Holy Spirit goes to those who do those two things, repent and be baptized. Now, baptism is not a work that earns salvation, but neither is repentance. It's a gift of God. But as we trust in the Lord, doing those things he calls us to do, our sins are forgiven, and we receive the Holy Spirit. And that applies to everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. That's what it says in the text. And you have to do some creative hermeneutics to explain how baptism can be a sign and seal of anything for a person who's not yet converted, who has not yet repented and put his faith in Christ. Now, again, this idea, it'd be inconceivable for a Jew not to include their children. Remember, John the Baptist had been baptizing for three years previous. And all Judea and all Jerusalem was going out. They knew what John was doing. They knew it was a baptism of repentance. Jesus and his disciples had been baptizing more people than John did. And there's no indication anywhere, no instruction anywhere, that that baptism would include children. 
but it did involve repentance. So to say that they would go back and cling to their old covenant perceptions of circumcision when they have been visibly observing what baptism looked like, I would call creative hermeneutics. Hopefully that's generous. Earlier, <clears throat> that, 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 that realization of what baptism was, by that time would be some, I wouldn't say common knowledge, but certainly familiar to many. So there's no reason to import old covenant thinking into a new covenant sign and seal if it's not set down for them. By the way, let me say this. In the New Testament, repentance and faith are inseparable. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has done a wonderful job, masterful job describing repentance and faith. He talks of them as being two sides of the same coin. The reality is nobody would repent of their sins if they don't believe, if they're not trusting that Jesus will forgive them. Who would repent and cast himself on the mercy of an unmerciful God? You can't repent without faith. But you cannot trust in God without repenting of your unbelief and your self-sufficiency. The two go hand in hand. And there is no such thing as salvation apart from repentance. So sometimes the question is, what must he do? Repent and be baptized. Other times it's repent and believe. John 3.16 doesn't say repent. It says whoever believes in him. But the two go together. And it's important that we never separate the two. So when the people are told repent, they clearly had to believe in Jesus as well. Two sides of the same coin. Well, another hermeneutical problem is what has been called the practice of good and necessary inferences. Now, I don't, we don't reject the idea of good and necessary inferences. There are things in Scripture that are not clearly spelled out. You won't find a statement anywhere in the Bible that says repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. But that is a good and necessary inference. If we're going to understand what the Bible teaches about both of those, we have to have them together. That is good. It is a necessary interpretation of Scripture to infer based on biblical evidence what is there. So the biblical evidence sometimes demands a conclusion that's not actually expressly or clearly stated. And we accept these inferences as true if they are good and if they are necessary. Now, our Pentecostal brothers would admit that infant baptism nowhere is clearly taught in the New Testament. In fact, B.B. Warfield, who is a, uh, one of the Presbyt- uh, Princeton uh, professors from the 1800s, a Presbyterian giant of their history, wrote this. He said, it is true there, are no, there is no express command to baptize infants in the New Testament. No express record of the baptism of infants. And no passages so stringently implying it that we must infer from them that infants were baptized. Here's this Baptist, or excuse me, this Presbyterian professor telling us the New Testament does not give us a compelling reason to believe in infant baptism. And yet he goes on and infers from the Old Testament with a backwards hermeneutic to make what he calls a good and necessary inference. And here it is. Under the Old Covenant, circumcision was the sign and seal of the covenant. Absolutely, yes. Amen. Baby boys of Jewish parents were required to receive that sign of the covenant, circumcision. Amen. Under the New Testament, baptism is a sign and seal of the new covenant. Amen. Therefore, and this is their inference, children of believers also should receive baptism. 
And my answer is, where did that come from? Now, that reasoning is actually very compelling and very convincing to many. It is. But it's only if you interpret New Testament teaching in light of the Old Testament. And that's a complete reversal of this fundamental rule of biblical interpretation. Fred Malone actually spoke in our church on this a number of years ago, Reformed Baptist brother, and he said, infant baptism is based on inferences that are neither good nor necessary. I agree with Fred. Well, third reason, hermeneutical principle, is that infant baptism violates the regulative principle of worship. Now, as Reformed believers, we believe in the regulative principle. That is, that the New Testament, primarily by the Scriptures, warrant or instruct us in what we should do in worship. We should not be bringing our own ideas and our own uh, imaginations into what we do in public worship. We don't We don't bring things in because people like it. What does the Bible teach us about worship? Well, we sing the praises of God. We pray together. We read his word. We preach and we listen to the preaching of the word. We give. Although in our church, we don't give during the worship service. Uh, Some do. And we observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table. These are the elements prescribed in the New Testament. Now, there are circumstances by which those elements are to be observed. For instance, some churches pass the plate when they take up a collection during the worship service. We don't. We put it in the boxes. There's one over there. There's one over there. There's one in the back. That's a circumstance about how the element is applied. But I would argue very strongly that who the candidates of the element of baptism are is not a circumstance. It is integral to the element itself. Just like the candidates for communion is integral to the element itself. So if baptism, which is clearly warranted in the New Testament, but baptizing children is completely absent in the New Testament, and even B.B. Warfield says so, then I would argue that baptizing infants is, is a violation of the regulative principle of worship. That's what Fred Malone says, and I agree with him. Well, another reason is that if we look carefully at the Old Covenant and the New, the, the, the sign and seal of the covenant should not be separated. But in paedo-baptist practice, the sign, of, uh, uh, the sign and seal of the covenant is separated from the covenant meal. So in the Old Testament, baby boys were circumcised. And as soon as they were weaned from their mother's milk, they participated in the Passover meal. There wasn't any other food in the house when the Passover was observed. There was unleavened bread and there was the food of the lamb and uh, the meat of the lamb and maybe some herbs. And that's what they ate. And if they could chew and swallow, every single member of the household observed the Passover meal. Period. Without exception. Now, our Presbyterian brothers consider communion or excuse me, they consider children as non-communicant members. In other words, they're members of the visible church, but they cannot yet take communion. They're not admitted to the Lord's table until they profess faith in Jesus Christ. And they, they go back to the instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 that tell us that we should examine ourselves so that we do not take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Amen. They say an infant cannot examine his own heart and eat in a worthy manner, therefore he should not be admitted to the table. Amen. 
But they don't require, they don't apply the very same hermeneutic to baptism. An infant cannot repent and believe in Jesus, therefore he should not be baptized either. They don't do that. The Passover is for the entire family. Why isn't the Lord's table for the entire family? Well, you know, it says repent and believe, but an infant can't do that, but we're going to baptize them anyway. Examine your heart before you take it in an unworthy manner. Well, a child can't do that, but we're going to give it to them anyway. Really? I don't see any legitimate basis for separating the two. In fact, years ago, uh, Greenville Presbyterian Seminary, where I, I, I dearly love my brothers over there, uh, we have a, a graduate here who is affectionately known as John the Baptist, <laughs> John Miller. Uh, they had a, during their Bible conference, they had a debate between one who, a pastor who practices pedo communion and one who has the more party line of dividing the two. And I gotta be honest with you. If you accept infant baptism, the argument for pedo communion was airtight and compelling. And I think the guy who argued against it got his clock cleaned. That's what I think. And I had some Presbyterian pastors come up to me afterwards, dear friends, and said, so what'd you think of the debate? I said, I am so thankful to be a Reformed Baptist. Because I feel like that other guy should have caused them some very serious problems. Well, another reason, another hermeneutical issue, is that Hebrews 8 concludes the Old Covenant is obsolete. And speaking of a New Covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Earlier in the text, it says the New Covenant is new. It's not like the Old now, I have talked with numerous Pedro Baptist friends about this, and they said, well, well, how new is new? And I say, brand new. But God works through families. Well, yeah, he does when it's a physical covenant. And yes, there's a blessing for our children when they grow up in Christian homes, but they're not converted yet. They're not in the covenant yet. How different is different. And what does obsolete mean? I think all of those things point strongly to reassessing who the candidates for the sign and seal of the new covenant ought to be. We must let the Bible speak for itself and not twist it or stand our biblical interpretation on their head. And if you tell Sinclair Ferguson I said that, I will deny it. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I want to look quickly at a few additional uh, passages for biblical evidence. We, we, we talked about Acts chapter 2, where, where Peter says, you and your children, the promise is for you and your children. Well, that, that, that cannot possibly be interpreted. Your little ones will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit if you repent and are baptized. It cannot possibly mean that their sins will be forgiven if mom and dad repent and are baptized, and the children are baptized too. It can only mean repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that applies to anyone, whomever the Lord will call. Well, in Acts chapter 10, please, please turn there. Just We're going to kind of hit these quickly. Peter, you remember, Simon Peter was uh, in Joppa, I believe, and he, he, he falls into a trance, and the angel says, there is a man named Cornelius, you, you need to go and, and, uh, and witness to his family. 
Now, obviously, it wasn't that specific. It was, there's, there's more to it than that. But Peter uh, he wakes up out of the trance, and, and these two people come and said, would you come with us? We were told to come and get you. And so he goes to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. And verse 44, Peter has, has preached the gospel to them. He has told them of Christ. And in verse 44, it says, while Peter was still saying these things, what things? Well, everyone who believes in receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. I'm not sure how you could get any clearer than that. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, meaning Peter didn't go by himself, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles, uncircumcised. For they were hearing and speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay or remain for some days. Who was baptized? Those who heard and who believed. Because everybody who heard believed. Are there any children in this family? doesn't say there are. It's an argument of silence to put children there. You could say it's an argument of silence not to put children there. Which is a better silent argument? To put something there that is not there or just assume it's not there because it's not there? You take your pick. Turn over to Acts chapter 16. Peter, excuse me, Paul and, 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 uh, and, and Silas have gone, they've received the Macedonian call. They've gone over into Philippi. They've gone to a place of prayer. They meet some God-fearing women. One is named Lydia. And they... Shared with them the gospel. And in verse 15, we read, And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Again, she's baptized, and so is her household. Who was in Lydia's household? We do not know. Lydia was a businesswoman, a dealer in cloth from Thyatira, which is about 300 miles away. The biblical evidence would lead us to believe that she probably traveled for business, which would also lead us to believe that she probably wasn't a mother of small children. And then she invites these men, come stay in my home with my household. Uh, it, it, it is questionable how you could make an argument that she has little children at home that also got baptized there by the river. Again, argument from silence. In Acts chapter thir- uh, 16, chap- uh, verse 33, same passage, or same chapter rather, uh, Paul and Silas are put in jail in Philippi. And uh, in the middle of the night, they've been singing hymns and praise to the Lord, and there's an earthquake, and everyone's chains fall off, and the doors all open up. And the Philippian jailer is terrified because he's responsible for every single prisoner. If any escape, he's going to forfeit his life. So he's afraid they're gone and I'm dead. So he's ready to take his own life on the spot. And Paul stops him and says, we are all here. And the text tells us he went and fell at their feet. Verse 31. Verse 30, rather. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I don't know if he means spiritual salvation because he's been listening to sing hymns to their God all this time or saved from the Romans who are going to kill him for what had just happened. But Paul jumps right to the gospel. 
And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay? Now you can say, is Paul saying, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, your entire household is saved? Really? There's nothing in the scriptures, anywhere, Old or New Testament, that would imply that. So the command is believe, and the promise is saved. Verse 31, excuse me, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Well, again, do you see any children in that family? I don't. They're not mentioned. But what it tells us is that he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. An indication, a a natural interpretation of this text is those in the house heard it, believed, professed faith in Christ, and then they were baptized. You could draw other implications as well, especially if you take the old covenant principles and impose them on the new. But there's nothing in here telling us to do that. So, there's no mention of children in these texts. The most compelling, the most clear and necessary inference is everyone who heard that message was old enough to understand it, to put their faith in Christ, and to accept believers' baptism. And I would tell you, every text, in every text where in the New Testament where baptism occurs, it is connected to faith in Christ. Faith precedes Baptism, in every single case. There's never the slightest hint of the baptism of children or infants. One other verse, you don't need to turn there, but in, first, in John chapter 1, John, speak, John says, as many as believed in him, I mean, verse 11, I think it says, he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. They rejected him. Verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God who were born not of blood, or of the will of flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Our adoption is based on regeneration, spiritual regeneration. Adoption is one of the covenant blessings based on being born again, born of God. Again, that emphasizes the spiritual nature of the new covenant. Well, very quickly, why does this even matter? Why is biblical or believer's baptism important? And I want to say again, I have deep respect for my Presbyterian brothers. I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to those who have, have written and preached and explained Reformed truth and many aspects of truth. When I went through the book of Revelation, it was greatly helped by Presbyterian writers. Our own confession of faith is basically, it's a baptized version of the Westminster Confession. The, the, the Baptist confessors in the 1600s took the Westminster and they changed the, the, the chapter on baptism and on church government to be congregational and left everything almost completely untouched because it was a deliberate, deliberate em- uh, effort to emphasize and to demonstrate the level of unity and agreement there was between these Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians. We go to conferences where there are Baptists and Presbyterian speakers and attendees. I used to love the Banner of Truth Pastors Conference where we had Baptists and Presbyterians and Christian Reformed men, and we talked about everything under the sun except baptism. Because there's no need to argue those things. We had such sweet fellowship. It was great. We focused on those common commitments to the faith and not on those secondary issues. And it is a secondary issue in terms of that kind of fellowship. But it actually does matter in the local church. What do you do 
the Great Commission says we're to go in all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. So we have a new family and the, the father and mothers come to faith in Christ and they come to the church and we baptize them. But what do we do with their children? Are we to baptize the children too? It's not what the Bible says. In a Presbyterian context, they would do that. So it actually matters. What do we do with our own children? Do we give them the privilege of believer's baptism where they publicly profess their faith before the congregation once that has happened? Or do we deny them that glorious privilege of sprinkling them when they're yet babies? Now, our Constitution does make an exception. There are those who, for providential reasons, may still hold to paedo-baptist convictions, and yet here they are. They want to be a member of our church. What do we do? We have an associate membership provision for people who have such, uh, such reservations, and we respect that. And uh, I think that's important to have a, a merciful open-heartedness about that. Well, let me, let me just draw a couple of concluding statements, and then we'll be done. First of all, where we must disagree with our brothers, we must do so agreeably. Uh, we don't disparage the godliness or the wisdom or the faithfulness of those who don't see it the way we do. Uh, and again, the, the fellowship we've enjoyed at Banner Conference and Together for the Gospel and other uh, uh, gospel coalition where, where there are paedo-baptists and Baptists all gathering together and celebrating the glory of the gospel. We don't need to worry about such matters. But secondly, I want to say to you, if you're not a Christian this morning, you're not a covenant child, you may be in a Christian home. But if you've not yet come, become a Christian, why not? Look at these glorious covenant promises. God says, I will give you a new heart. I'll take away your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my laws in your heart. It will no longer be this exterior law condemning you and telling you what a bad person you are. You will have a desire to keep the law that you never had before. You'll delight in it. But it won't become the basis on which you're accepted before God because Jesus did that for you. How wonderful is that? You'll have this everlasting covenant relationship with God where he says, I will be your God, you will be my child, and there's nothing that can ever separate you from my love. You'll have this intimate relationship. You can know God, the best of all beings. To know him, we read, is life eternal. And hear me, your sins can be completely forgiven. You don't have to live in guilt and shame. You don't have to live in fear looking over your shoulder when, when your sins will catch up to you. You can walk in the freedom of forgiveness. And Jesus says, come. Whoever comes to me, I'll never, ever drive away. And then my last question to you. Young people or adults, have you professed faith in Jesus Christ, but for some reason you have not yet been baptized? You've not publicly professed that faith in Christ through believer's baptism. My question to you is, why not? It's not that your baptism will save you, but it is an act of obedience. Repent and be baptized. It's the way that we publicly profess our union with Christ and we enter into union with his people, his church. Last time we did a baptism, I was very grateful that the water was heated. It wasn't that cold. And I was very tempted to say, you who are not yet baptized and need to be, come on in, the water's fine. I would say that to you. If you're a believer young person, maybe adult, have been baptized for whatever reason. Come on in. The water's fine. 